0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 78. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on June 30th, 2022, known to corporate tools everywhere as the end of Q2 in New Orleans. Trust me when I say that if your birthday is June 30th, you might not want to become an accountant. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. You would benefit from listening to In Virginia in 1619 Part 1 before this episode, but I'm not the prerequisite cop or anything, so you do you. John Rolfe wrote a letter to Sir Edwin Sands in the fall of 1619. Which contained the following passage Quote About the latter end of August, a Dutch man of war of the burden of 160 tons arrived at Point Comfort. The commander's name, Captain Jope. His pilot for the West Indies, one Mr. Marmaduke, an Englishman. They met with the treasurer in the West Indies and determined to hold a consort ship hitherward, but in their passage lost one the other. He brought not anything but twenty-and-odd Negroes, which the governor in Cape Merchant bought for victuals, whereof he was in great need, as he pretended, at the best and easiest rates they could. For a long time, this was almost all that we knew about the arrival of the first Africans in English North America. We also knew the name of the Dutch ship, the White Lion, And we knew that Rolfe's estimate of the number, 20 and odd, was a little low. A census of the colony in early 1620 revealed 32 Africans. There's been an immense amount of scholarship around this moment, especially in the last 30 years. We will return to a small fraction of it later in the episode. First, though, let's set the table a bit. Three big things happened in Virginia in 1619. Last week, we discussed the establishment of the House of Burgesses, the first even arguably representative assembly in English North America. This week, we tackled the first importation of enslaved Africans, a few weeks after that first assembly met. And before you accuse me of assuming the conclusion, there has indeed been a lot written about whether those Africans, once acquired under some terms, were actually enslaved— Please pay careful attention to the precision in my language. They were absolutely enslaved by the Africans who captured them, Portuguese who bought them, and by the privateers who stole them. No argument there. The debate, such as there is one, addresses their status once in the hands of the English at Jamestown. I'll come back to that briefly in the usual spirit of this podcast. Both the meeting of the General Assembly and the arrival of the 20 and odd have been famously held to be of enormous significance, and it's not hard to see why. Both were firsts in a long line of American traditions, respectfully representative assemblies and the involuntary servitude of Africans and descendants of Africans. A third development that year perhaps has not gotten the attention it has deserved, the arrival of a group of almost a hundred unmarried women, prospective wives for the overwhelmingly male English population of settlers. Look out, here, the prize. It seems to me that quite ordinary thing might have had the greatest actual historical impact. Firsts, after all, are only firsts and are not necessarily connected to subsequent practices. English settlers in New England would develop their own quite different version of representative government from which we also enjoy a long tradition. New Englanders would also import Africans and their descendants to enslave no later than 1638. And of course, longstanding and very attentive listeners remember that it was the Spanish who brought the first enslaved Africans into today's United States in the expedition of Lucas Vazquez de Ayon at the failed settlement of San Miguel de Guadalupe on the Georgia-South Carolina line in 1526, 93 years before the arrival of the White Lion in the Chesapeake, first can turn into nothing or just be examples of something popping up all over the place. But the arrival in Virginia of, shall we say, eligible women would allow for the organic growth of the English population there, which would arguably have far more lasting significance than either Virginia's narrowly drawn representative assembly or the arrival of the 20 and odd. Organic growth would change everything. There is some notion outside professional circles that American historians have ignored the 20 and odd until recently, perhaps in part because... The 1619 Project of the New York Times used the White Lion's arrival to anchor its supposedly new telling of American history. In fact, the story of the White Lion, which has indeed been much developed and elaborated upon in the last generation or so, has popped up in many, if not most, surveys of American history for the better part of two centuries— George Bancroft, the father of the history profession in the United States, author of the first history of the United States in editions of 8 to 10 volumes, published between 1834 and 1878, and as Secretary of Navy, the founder of the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis, wrote no later than 1878, quote, In the month of August 1619, a few days only after the first representative assembly of Virginia, about 16 months before the Plymouth colony landed in America, and less than two years before the concession of a written constitution, and five years after, the commons of France had petitioned for the emancipation of every serf in every fief— A Dutch man of war entered James River and landed 20 Negroes for sale. This is indeed the sad epoch of the introduction of Negro slavery in the English colonies. Bancroft used language that today we regard as archaic, but he put the moment firmly in the context of its time. 140 years later... Harvard professor Jill Lepore would publish the most recent single-volume survey of American history, These Truths, A History of the United States. With the benefit of a great deal of intervening scholarship, here's how Professor Lepore described the same moment when she was writing in 2018. One month after the General Assembly met, 20 Africans arrived in Virginia, the first slaves in British America, Kimbundu speakers from the kingdom of Nindango. Captured in raids ordered by the governor of Angola, they'd been marched to the coast and boarded the São João Bautista, St. John the Baptist to we Anglophones, a Portuguese slave ship headed for New Spain. At sea, an English privateer, the White Lion, sailing from New Netherlands, attacked the Soujaou Bautista, seized all 20, and brought them to Virginia to be sold. Wait, New Netherlands? We'll get back to that. Regardless, what explains Bancroft's characterization of the White Lion as a Dutch man of war and Lepore's version, an English privateer, the White Lion, sailing from New Netherlands? To resolve that discrepancy, you have to look to Lepore's notes, which send the reader to an entry in the Encyclopedia of Virginia written by Martha McCartney, quote, One of those privateers was the 160-ton white lion, which sailed out of the port of Vlissingen, Flushing, the Netherlands. Its captain, John Colin Jope, bore Dutch letters of Mark from Maurice, Prince of Orange. This paperwork allowed him as a civilian to attack and plunder Spanish ships. Note that Lepore's own footnote, and pretty much every other source, says that the White Lion sailed from Vlissingen in the Netherlands. So I think she crossed her wires on that one. We therefore have a Dutch port of origination, probably a Dutch flag, given Rolf's contemporaneous account, and Dutch letters of mark. But an English ship, a Cornish captain, an English pilot, and an English consort, the treasurer, partly owned by Samuel Argyll. Was the White Lion a Dutch man of war or an English privateer? I think they're both right. Wasn't it both an English ship and a Dutch privateer? Once again, breaking new ground here on the History of the Americans podcast. Between Bancroft and Lepore, there were many other opportunities to mention the 20 and odd. I looked at 11 other surveys of American history written between Bancroft and Lepore. Seven out of the total of 13 talked about the white lion and the 20 and odd, and the other six did not. And for what it's worth, Carl Degler Who's out-of-our-past was the preeminent American history text in colleges in the 60s and 70s, described the White Lion as a Dutch ship. Of course, the characterization of the White Lion's nationality is not terribly important, but that it has been described many times is. American historians have been writing about this moment since the invention of the profession— and Americans of at least every living generation have been exposed to it, at least if they took American history in college or even high school. Degler's book was the core text for my own AP American history class in 1977, my junior year in high school. Enough historiography. To me, there are more and less interesting questions arising out of the arrival of the Africans in Virginia in August of 1619. More interesting questions include who they were, how they came to find themselves in Virginia, and what they did after they got there. I'm especially interested in who they were and how they came to find themselves in Virginia. Just as we have spent and will spend a fair amount of time looking at the backgrounds of Europeans and others who came to America, so we will with the Africans whose children would become Americans in their time, just as the children of Europeans would. Less interesting questions include whether or not they were enslaved once they disembarked in Virginia. That question is not very interesting for two reasons. First, the answer turns on the definition of enslaved, a word which labors under semantic overload. It embraces a range of meanings that cover different types of involuntary servitude. People exploit the ambiguity in the word to win semantic arguments rather than to understand history. Frankly, I've not yet learned enough about slavery and history to discuss the question the way my listeners would hope and expect. I will do in the future. Second, arriving at the exact answer does not mean much other than as fuel for one side or another in today's political and cultural arguments. As you know, we officially don't care about that on this podcast. Nevertheless, so you don't think I'm copping out completely, at the end of the episode, I'll do my best to summarize the debate, or at least the facts around the debate, over the legal status of the 20 and odd, which James Horn weighs in more detail and with characteristic judiciousness. In his book 1619, Jamestown and the Forging of American Democracy. You might go out and buy that if you're interested. Link in the show notes. The twenty-and-odd Africans arrived at Virginia and went to work on farms along the James River at the end of a series of transactions. Rather than reinvent the story, I'll quote liberally from Martha McCartney's Encyclopedia Virginia entry with a few clarifying internal edits. Sometime in 1619, the Portuguese slave ship St. John the Baptist left Luanda, a Portuguese military outpost in west-central Africa, and sailed for Veracruz and New Spain. The captain, Manuel Mendez de Cunha, carried with him 350 enslaved Africans, 200 of whom had embarked under a license held by investors in Seville to sell them in New Spain, when Dacuna arrived in Veracruz on August 30th, however, he delivered only 147, including, according to Spanish records, 24 African boys whom he at some point sold in Jamaica. Those same records indicate that Dacuna had been robbed off the coast of Mexico by English corsairs, or privateers. One of those privateers was the 160-ton white lion, which sailed out of the port of Lissingen, the Netherlands. Its captain, John Colin Jope, bore Dutch letters of Mark from Maurice, Prince of Orange. This paperwork allowed him, as a civilian, to attack and plunder Spanish ships. The other ship, the English treasurer, also sailed out of Lissingen and was jointly owned by Robert Rich, Lord Warwick, and Virginia's deputy governor, Samuel Argyll. Its captain, Daniel Elfrith, also bore a letter of Mark his on the authority of Charles Emmanuel I, Duke of Savoy, an independent duchy whose land has since been subsumed by present-day France and Italy. An eyewitness said that when the white lion and the treasurer met at sea, Captain Jope took command. Afterward, Jope loaded 25 men aboard the white lion's penis and set out to attack St. John the Baptist late in July or early in August 1619. When the Pinnace's crew, comprised of men from both ships, returned two or three days later, one man admitted that they had attacked an Angolan ship and another claimed that they had found at sea an empty Angolan ship. They brought along 60 or so of Dakunas enslaved Africans and substantial quantities of grain and tallow. A large number of the Africans on the St. John the Baptist, a hundred or more, probably died during the Atlantic crossing. The White Lion and the treasurer immediately set sail for Virginia, where they hoped to sell their cargo. According to a letter written by the colony's secretary, John Rolfe, to Sir Edwin Sands, the White Lion arrived first and landed at Point Comfort sometime in late August, having lost its consort ship on the passage from the West Indies. Rolf described the ship as a Dutch man of war, perhaps because it bore Dutch letters of mark. He brought not anything but twenty and odd Negroes, Rolf wrote, which the governor, Argyll's successor Sir George Yardley and the Cape Merchant Abraham Piercy, bought for victuals at the best and easiest rate they could. Some of the Africans were then transported to Jamestown and Flowerdew Hundred a plantation on the upper reaches of the James River that Piercy was in the process of purchasing from Yardley. John Porry, John Rolfe's successor as secretary, indicated that the White Lion was in Virginia for a month. Therefore, it probably sold any other African captives that remained aboard. The treasurer arrived at Point Comfort three or four days later, with between 28 and 30 additional Africans aboard. Captain Elfrith sold two or three of them in Virginia. But he also found that the residents of Keketon refused to sell supplies to him or his crew, perhaps because port officials knew by then that his letters of mark from the Duke of Savoy were no longer valid. The Duke had made peace with Spain about a month after the treasurer had left England, which meant that Captain Elfrith and the ship's owners now could be accused of piracy, a legal complication the Virginia Company officials probably wanted to avoid. Back to me. Among the perhaps relevant context, there are two factoids that bear mentioning. The first is that Captain Elfrith and the treasurer then went to the new English colony of Bermuda, where he sold the balance of the Africans, and they were recorded as slaves. We'll come back to that briefly at the end of the episode. The second is that by August 1619, around half a million enslaved Africans had already been shipped across the Atlantic to work in Spanish and Portuguese settlements, including a small number at St. Augustine, Florida. So who were these first Africans, and who would become the first African Virginians? For a long time, historians believed that they were an undifferentiated group of enslaved blacks from the Spanish West Indies, but in the last 25 years or so, new scholarship has identified them fairly specifically. In addition to James Horn's book, my main reference is a paper published in 1998 by John K. Thornton, now professor of history at Boston University, The African Experience of the 20 and Odd Negroes Arriving in Virginia in 1619. Link on the website as usual. The first African Virginians came from West Africa, and today's Angola, or the western part of today's Democratic Republic of Congo. The region was remarkably diverse and extended from the Kingdom of Congo, K-O-N-G-O, in the north, to the neighboring province of Ndongo in the central highlands, with various other peoples arrayed along the coast to the south. The Portuguese arrived in the 1480s and soon began a long period of trade and cultural exchange. In Horn's account, quote, "...within a generation, the Congolese had espoused their own distinctive form of Catholicism, constructed churches, established schools to encourage literacy among the elite, and entered into diplomatic dealings with the Portuguese." Lesser states, such as Ndongo and provinces to the south, were inclined to be more cautious, fearing subjection and conquest by the Europeans, but nevertheless favored alliances with the Portuguese to buttress their military strength and independence. One common objective of paramount importance shared by Portuguese and African traders alike throughout West Central Africa was the opportunity to profit from the immensely lucrative slave trade. The slave trade drew the Portuguese into ever closer relations with African rulers all along the coast. And for their part, Africans were drawn more and more into the Portuguese orbit of Atlantic commerce. The capture and sale of human beings was not introduced by Europeans. It was embedded in African culture and consequently had a long history. But the alliance with Portuguese merchants greatly expanded and extended the slave trade, bringing riches to ruling kings and merchants alike. In the early 16th century, Congo was exporting 2,000 slaves annually, primarily to southern Europe and São Tomé, Portugal's Atlantic island off the equatorial coast of Central Africa, where the rapid growth of sugar production relied on enslaved labor. By 1600, the number of enslaved workers sent from Angola to the Americas and elsewhere annually had more than doubled. Little wonder that to promote their own interests in the trade and to advance military alliances, the rulers of Ndongo, Benguela, and Luanga each established their own relationship with the Portuguese. These partnerships were advantageous at first, but would ultimately prove disastrous. Back to me. This equilibrium persisted for most of a century. But in 1571, Sebastian I, king of Portugal, changed Portuguese policy. He wanted his own territory in Africa and commanded his military in Angola to carve out a new realm under his rule known as Portuguese Angola in the territory of the Ndongo. The Portuguese would wage a war of more than 20 years, but would fail to defeat the Indango by conventional means. In 1670, Luiz Mendes de Vasconcelos, apologies for no doubt butchering that pronunciation, became governor of Angola. In light of the failure of the Portuguese to subjugate the Indango in more than 20 years of conventional warfare, he made common cause with companies of a people known as the Embangala, called Yagas, These were some of the most ferocious people I, at least, have ever read about. John Thornton's description in an academic paper is positively chilling. Quote, The Mbingala are a mysterious group, and their origins have aroused much debate. Although the Portuguese officials of the time routinely called them Yagas, and link them vaguely with a group that had invaded the Kingdom of Congo in the 1570s, modern historians deny that connection and place their immediate origins in the central highlands of Angola in the region containing the modern cities of Huamba and Lubanga. They are described for the first time in the historical record by Andrew Battelle, a captured English sailor forced to serve the Portuguese. In an account of his 16-month stay with an Imbangala band led by Imbi Kaladula in about 1599 to 1601, Patel does not characterize the Imbangala as an ethnic or folk group, though some of their descendants became one in the late 17th century and persist today. Rather, the Imbangala were a company or several independent companies. Of soldiers and raiders who lived entirely by pillage. The Imigala seemed to have been a quasi-religious cult dedicated to evil in the Central African sense of violent greed and selfishness. They allowed no children in their camp, killing all newborn babies by burying them alive, according to Patel, and reinforcing themselves and replacing their casualties by recruiting adolescent boys from among their captives. These boys were made to wear a distinctive collar until they had learned the art of war and had killed someone when they were admitted to full membership in the group. Imbe Kalandula's band had recruited so many of its people by this method that only the senior officers were said to be members of his original company. The rest had been recruited through capture. Their penchant for cannibalism and human sacrifice was apparently rooted in beliefs about witchcraft. The Mbingala actively assumed the role of witches, whose fundamental characteristic was that they killed and ate their victims. That they were viewed as fighting in the cause of profound evil is revealed by a folk belief recorded half a century later. According to this tale, the protective deities of the Gangela region were so terrified by the Imbingala that they went and hid in the lakes and rivers only to reemerge when time had caused the Mbingala to soften their ways. This radical devotion to evil was confirmed by their exploitative economy. Patel noted that they do reap their enemies' corn and take their cattle for they will not sow, nor plant, nor bring up any cattle, more than they take by wars. Their favorite pillage was palm wine taken from cultivated trees. Instead of tapping the trees and drawing small quantities of sap for oil or to ferment for wine, they cut down the whole tree. It gave no yield for ten days, and a small hole was drilled into the heart of the tree which would yield about two quarts of sap a day for 26 days when it dried up. By this method, they destroyed all the palm trees in a region. And when it had been used up, they moved on. I like locusts. They're moving from planet to planet, their whole civilization. After they've consumed every natural resource, they move on. Suffice it to say, making common cause with the Mangala against the Ndongo was not Portugal's finest moment. It did, however, result in victory. By the winter of 1618 to 1619, the Ndongo capital city of Cabasa had fallen to the alliance and military resistance collapsed. The campaign captured an enormous number of people, many of whom would be sold to Portuguese traders. Now, back to Professor Thornton, quote, So many people were captured and designated for sale abroad during this brief time that they overwhelmed the capacity of Luanda to manage them. Shipping was probably inadequate to transport all the slaves captured who remained imprisoned in the city in makeshift and not always secure pens. The St. John the Baptist was one of 36 slave ships that left Luanda for Brazil or ports in the Spanish Indies in 1619. Back to me. Professor Thornton breaks down the geography of the campaign in some detail, noting that it covered a relatively small area and involved a single ethnicity. The upshot was that the overflowing slave pens of Luanda that year were probably filled with people who mostly spoke the same language, many of whom may have been relatives. This would have meant that those 36 slave ships carried a relatively homogeneous population, in contrast to the peoples more usually acquired via wide-ranging trade routes and scattered local wars. If this reasoning makes sense, and it does to me, then the 20 and odd may have carried a distinctive Central Angolan culture to Virginia that would have meant that they would be able to understand each other and quite possibly knew people in common back in the old country. One can imagine that might have been some small solace against the terrors of the Middle Passage, combat at sea, an involuntary service in Tidewater, Virginia, already an extremely dangerous place. There is some evidence for this in the American record. Some of the original 20 and odd would eventually, after decades, secure their own freedom and become landholders in their own right, primarily on the Eastern Shore. The most famous of these was a man with a Christian name, Anthony Johnson, who eventually built his own farm and in turn enslaved Africans. Johnson's free son, John, would eventually buy a plantation and name it Angola. There's been a long argument, sometimes weaponized for contemporary political purposes, over whether the 20 and odd and other blacks who arrived in the next few years were slaves. You can't see my scare quotes. Or more akin to the white laborers who came from England under written contracts. Among people who debate the matter in good faith, part of the ambiguity turns on the word slave, which, as I said up front, does a great deal of work covering a wide range of manifestly oppressive versions of servitude. That's a topic far too vast for this episode, although I fully expect to get to it someday. Instead, let me offer a series of factual statements for you to chew on. One, these first African Americans in English North America absolutely had been enslaved, first by the Mbengala, Then by the Portuguese, who bought them and transported them with an intention to resell them. Then by the captain and officers of the White Lion, who regarded them as lawful booty and stole them. And finally, by Governor George Yardley and the colony's Cape Merchant, Abraham Piercy, who secured them to work on their plantations in exchange for food and tobacco. None of these transactions had any of the marks of indentured servitude, including an actual contract or something given in return to the servant-involved, such as passage across the Atlantic. The debate, therefore, is whether once in Virginia their condition was transformed to some condition of non-slavery servitude, as was common among whites in the colony. Two, the treasurer went on to sell its remaining African cargo in the new English colony of Bermuda, where they were actually recorded as slaves. Three, English records at the time did record the 20 and oddest servants. The English certainly knew the word slave, so some argue that means these first African Americans were not slaves. Others have argued that the line between the two categories is not sharp and that they overlap. So the word servant in the records does not necessarily mean not enslaved. 4. There was no institution of slavery per se in English North America in 1619, and no provision for it in the law. Nor was there yet an explicit difference in status on account of race. In 1619, it was implicit. The law and practice would evolve over the next 50 years until the late 1600s, when statutes would provide for slavery as it came to be known. 5. It is the case that some of the original group would secure their own freedom and go on to own farms, win lawsuits, perhaps vote, and in at least the case of Andrew Johnson, own slaves. With great effort and luck, it would be possible for a black man to free himself in 17th century Virginia. By the end of the century, for all intents and purposes, it would not be possible. Six. One study of household inventories in English Virginia, presumably recorded for estates and other legal proceedings, reveals that through 1676, 80% of white indentured servants had the remaining terms of service recorded, but less than 1% of black laborers had a recorded term of service. Conversely, the black laborers had much higher valuations assigned to them, probably because of their indefinite terms of service. We report, you decide. The population of Africans and the descendants of Africans would remain small in proportion to Virginia's white population for 50 years. In 1671, only 5% of the non-Indian population of Virginia would be black. But then it would ramp quickly. By 1715, blacks would account for 24% of the total. And by 1756, according to Carl Degler, blacks, virtually all of whom were enslaved, would account for over 40% of the non-Indian population of Virginia. The changing demographics drove legal changes. James Horn describes the evolution, quote, During the next several decades, examples of institutionalized racial discrimination became increasingly common. In 1614, an act passed to encourage the security of the colony stipulated that all persons except Negroes should be provided with arms and ammunition— A series of legislative measures systematically discriminated against African women. Planters were obliged to pay taxes on African women over the age of 16 and their descendants, but not on white women, signifying that female Africans were routinely employed to work in the fields. The tax was indicative of the value they were assumed to bring to their owner. A highly significant act passed by the General Assembly in 1662, decreed that the status of African or African-American children should in the future follow the condition of the mother. In other words, if an Englishman fathered a child with an enslaved African, the child would be accorded the status of a slave. Other such laws would follow until by the end of the 1600s, Being even partly black in Virginia meant a lifetime of enslavement for virtually all such people. Of course, the chain of cause and effect from the 20 and odd, which is relevant for people who insist on the existence or non-existence of such a chain, is harder to discern. Even if enslaved as I believe they were, the 20 and odd might be just one of those random firsts, rather than the... First step down a road that would only go one place. Regardless, I rather like Jill Lapore's poetic formulation of that famous year of sixteen nineteen in Virginia. Quote Twenty Englishmen were elected to the House of Burgesses. Twenty Africans were condemned to the House of Bondage. Another chapter opened in the American Book of Genesis, Liberty and Slavery became the American Abel and Cain. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple. That really does help because algorithms do their algorithm thing. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, or just to hear me declaim. You can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. Search in all the usual ways. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website historyoftheamericans.com of the or by email at the history of the Americans at Gmail Until next time.